really a treasure to be with you today to start the last three prayers of Christ before his resurrection, actually before his final death, I should say. Today we're going to look at Luke 23. But before we begin, I want to read the Old Testament prophecy that correlates with this passage. If you're not there already, Isaiah 53, verse 12. I'll read this for us before we pray. <clears throat> Isaiah says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Father, we thank you for this time where we peer into the death of your beloved, that willing sacrifice for the sake of our redemption to be crushed by his own father, Yet in the midst of his suffering, in midst of the ridicule, in midst of the blasphemy, he prays. Father, I pray that this prayer would be our prayer as we are to walk in his likeness. And Father, it is only by your grace that this can be a reality in our life. So we humbly request and submit ourselves to the efficacious work of your grace to do this, to live this, because with this there is a promise to us. So Holy Spirit, we invite you, we welcome you, we need you in this hour to open our eyes, open our ears, Lord, not just to hear, but to listen and to believe and to walk in what we believe by faith. In Jesus' name, we commit our time to you. Amen. Luke 23, 34, please turn there. This is going to be our passage for today. As I said, it's the first of his final three prayers. There are actually seven statements that encompass the three prayers that Christ issued forth, that he uttered, that he declared, that he cried on the cross. We're not going to look at the four statements but I can highly recommend Arthur Pink's book on that, The Seven Statements on the Cross, if you want to dig into that, because in Pink's manner and ways, he really brings out some, some depth to that. But we're going to look at his three prayers, and the first one beginning, Luke 23:33. Word of God says, When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's enough to hush us. But to prepare our minds for what we're going to look at today in this final segments of the study on Christ's intercessory work and his example for us, I want to briefly go back and look at Gethsemane and just ask ourselves some questions. What could we say, what could we comprehend about the reality of the God-man being full 
of grace and truth, truly beloved of the Father, prayed under such agony to the point of needing angelic assistance. How can we gain a greater understanding of our Lord's humility and willingness to suffer in our place when we hear him praying in agony, praying even more earnestly so that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground? Truly, its fullness is beyond our understanding. But how this should stir our souls to greater worship and gratitude toward Christ. Jesus, now betrayed by one who was a close friend, right? Judas, referencing back to the Psalms 41, who ate his bread and now lifted his heel against him. Those who had just hours prior had committed an unwavering allegiance unto death and even attempted to take on the large crowd with a sword and the Roman cohort. But as Christ willingly surrendered himself to the Roman cohort, the three to 800 soldiers that had come out to incarcerate one man, all his followers and, and nearest supporters, what happened? They scattered, they fled, they abandoned him. But Christ goes forth, surrendering himself fully to the will of his Father of what he just prayed in the garden, refreshed with angelic help and in the power of the Spirit of God. He goes forth with his betrayer, even himself and the Roman cohort. And it's in this divine surrender that he, he first, as John notes, declares himself as the I Am. And what happens? They fall back to the ground at this declaration. But we see him now escorted, betrayed by Judas' kiss, taken out of the garden by these three to 800 soldiers and the high priest, where he is falsely accused, perceived of, of blaspheming, criminal quietly, and he meekly endures a mock trial at best, no one there is able to find the slightest evidence, any evidence of violation or sin in anything he has ever done and said. In fact, they were so determined to do such that they came up with fake stories, didn't they? Twisting his words, saying, oh, he said he could rebuild the temple in three days, not understanding what he was talking about of himself. They did this to fortify their plans, right? And when the high priest and the witnesses cried out that the Lord's testimony of coming glory and the power in the heavenlies, when they saw this as blasphemy, tearing their robes, it was then that Peter was sifted like wheat. His faith, his allegiance to Jesus was tried and tested. And just as Jesus had declared to Peter, as he had, had prophesied about him, he denied Jesus three consecutive times, even calling down curses on himself in doing so, losing complete control over these accusations. And at the onset of the reality of Jesus' words, piercing not only his ears but his soul, at that moment, the crow, piercing crow of the rooster, he went out and wept bitterly. 
None of the Jewish religious leaders or Roman rulers could exact any measure of fault upon any of his actions or his word. Nevertheless, they imposed on him with such an insistent, vile, and wicked clamoring of judgment by those whose hearts were clearly manifested in their continuous cries of crucify him, nail him to a cross. And this injustice, this crueling and suffering on a cross, this being crucified was never a comedy of any sort, but of all these involved, both Jewish and Romans, they turned this into a comical state and satire. They thought his proclamation and claim to be king of the Jews to be a laughing matter, and their entire plan to execute him in this way was a diabolical comedy. The Jews, what did they want? What were they looking for? They were looking for a conquering king, right? They wanted somebody to come in and free them from Roman authority, from the oppression they were under. But for this proclaiming Messiah to speak of coming to die was completely incomprehensible to them. This did not register. And Satan perceived in his limited estate that this betrayal and crucifixion of the Son of God would be his greatest achievement ever. He would finally have won. He's a fool. And as we know, if we look back all the way back to Luke 3, 21 and 22, Jesus began his ministry in what way? In prayer, right? It says, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. And I hope we've seen in the study that Jesus' life was a life of prayer, of necessary, ceaseless, intercessory communion with the Father. And now at the close of his life, at the close of his incarnate, pre-glorified ministry, we find him continuing in the same habit of prayer. But I I believe in order for us to see really a, a, a beautiful facet of the power and the glory of this simple prayer that I, if you're like me, you've read this hundreds of times. You thought, oh, he, he prayed, you know, don't forgive them for what they're doing. But this is the God-man, the incarnate Son of God, fully human. And we need to examine his crucifixion up to this point for a specific purpose. I'm not just doing this to magnify the grotesqueness, but it it really leads up to the purpose of this prayer. This form of execution by crucifixion, being nailed to a tree as as a form of, of extreme and final punishment, it goes all the way back to 600 BC. The Persians started this. King Darius crucified some 3,000 Babylonians. About 400 BC, Alexander the Great crucified some 2,000 people of Tyre in revenge for what they did to him. Hasmonean, the king of Judea, Alexander, Janius, they crucified 800 rebels in the first century BC. The Romans, though, they used this means of execution extensively. 
you could say in a grotesque way, they perfected it. They improved upon how to extend the cruelty like no other king and no other peoples. And at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, they actually ran out of, out of lumber to crucify the number of Jews that they were persecuting. However, we do find in, in a sense that the biblical account of the Lord's crucifixion is, is restrained in a sense, meaning it, it, it's not just the physical sufferings of Jesus that are unique, but wha rather what they accomplished. And each gospel account only uses three Greek words to describe the actual crucifixion. They don't go into detail about the nails, about raising the cross, no ex specific elements. Have you ever wondered why? Why didn't they document the account of crucifixion? It was common. They were used to it. They saw it a lot. It was, it was a public means of, of execution that the Romans did on main thoroughfares, on elevated plots of land for all to see. And it wasn't necessary to these writers because I said it's familiar to them. But criminals under Roman law faced this means of punishment nearly every day. So it was not uncommon to walk down you know, from Jerusalem to Judea to Jericho and see crosses of criminals being strung up. But the exact location of Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull, is not known in our day and time. They believe there's, I think there's a Catholic church on what they think is the spot now, but it was a familiar place around the first century A.D. and around Jerusalem. But it was named that and identified because of the gruesome deaths that occurred there. And it's the entire process that the Romans developed that I want to look into for purpose. Again, I'm not trying to magnify the gruesomeness of this, but to keep our eyes and our ears on Christ in this prayer, okay? Accused criminals were initially beaten, rod or a stick or a whip. Then they would take their arms and bind them and lift them over their head and attach it to a pole to where their back and their legs, their whole torso was exposed and they were slumped over where they could, could not move. But two lictors, two attendants, Roman magistrate attendants, would take what's called a cat of nine tails or leather thongs that had embedded in them pieces of, of metal, pieces of bone. And these two lictors would take turns alternating whips from the neck all the way down to the knee, behind the knee. It would expose subcutaneous tissue the very fabric of the muscles would be ripped apart, and the accused would easily suffer what they call a circulatory shock due to the exposed tissue and the heavy blood. Our Lord and the two thieves accused with him were scourged in this way. But then our Lord suffered even further ridicule and pain for the soldiers put a wool robe on the back of his exposed back and legs put a crown of thorns on his head and beat it into his skull, spat upon him, mocked him, beat him. But then when the innocent Christ had the robe ripped off of his back, it further exposed all the flesh that had been torn up by the thongs, increasing the pain level 
And he was also in this time suffering from a great lack of sleep, no water, no food. The cross member, the heavy beam that they were nailed to, was tied to the wrist of the accused, placed on their necks and shoulders for them to carry all the way up to the side of the crucifixion. And we know that Simon of Cyrene helped Jesus in this time, right? Because he was either so weak, unable to carry that, or he wasn't keeping up with the Roman soldiers. Because they were, they enjoyed this kind of work. But scripture does not give us details for the reason. But in all of this suffering, Jesus refused any sedation. They would take wine, mix it with gall. Gall was something they extracted from berries or even poppies. It was an anesthetic. It would ease the pain, but it would also prolong the death process. Christ refused it. He tasted what they were giving him, and he refused it. But at the place of the skull, when they finally all arrived, they were thrown to the ground on their backs, onto the rocks, onto the dirt, with the rough wood, the cross piece pushed under their backs with their hands and wrists. They were then nailed to it. They're imagining anywhere from four to seven inch iron spikes, half inch diameter across, probably not very sharp. Typically, either through the wrist between the ulna and the radius or through the carpal tunnel into the wrist. Sometimes they would put a piece of wood over the wrist when they'd nail it so the the accused couldn't pull their arms off of the nails while they were being crucified. <coughs> Once he was impaled by the nails, he was hosted, hoisted up by rope to the cross piece, the stipe that the cross piece is attached to, either by nail or by notch. Then the feet are nailed to the stipe, either on top of each other with a single nail through or later, they actually have some archaeological digs that, that show nails going back through the back of the ankles, through the Achilles tendon on each side of the stipe, which made any attempt to raise yourself to breathe even more excruciating. Our meek Lord would only be able to breathe as he pushed up and pulled up himself on the cross because all you could do was hang and Asphyxia would set in, or pulmonary embolism, or hypercardia, where you'd overextend your lungs in carbon dioxide. So death would occur anywhere from a few hours to days. Josephus actually has an account where someone was crucified, and three days later they took him down, and he was still alive. But the Roman soldiers would go around and break the legs of the accused in order to expedite the death if they were in a hurry. And then, of course, we know from John 1934, to confirm death, they would take a spear and poke it in the side. And from that, water and blood would flow, which is an evidence of death and what would occur in the chest. But the blatant mockery, the false accusations, the physical torture of the Lord Jesus Christ at his crucifixion was the ultimate act of sin. It was sin at its apex and the blasphemy against the divine son, the innocent son was sheer scorn 
at the creator and redeemer who was sent to redeem them. Now, taking this all into account now, was it not within the right of the king of kings, the God incarnate who had revealed himself to his own creation, to react to such vileness and wickedness and sin with a swift, exacting, powerful judgment? What, what does Leviticus 24 say? The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And even though this crucifixion of the Son of God deserved the most immediate, righteous, and severe judgment, what do we see? What do we hear? Can you comprehend the level of pain and suffering and to utter the words in such merciful fashion and such a dispatching, if you will, of the Spirit of God. Jesus preached many sermons throughout his ministry. I mean, he started in Mark 1.38. He was always proclaiming, demonstrating the kingdom of God that it was at hand, calling all manners, manner of sinners to repentance and belief. And what did Jesus teach us in Matthew 5.44? If you remember that several months ago. Disciples of Christ, how are they to respond? We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And the purpose for this, what we're going to see, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's a purpose clause. We're going to look at the, the, the fruit of that purpose in a minute. Have you ever considered that Jesus knew himself that this very command of his would test him to the fullest extent? He had to live out his very word under such persecution, under such torment. Could he, would he pray? We know he did, but think about this. For those who were putting him through this excruciating pain, he was completely innocent. No guilt found in him. No sin found in him. No accusation could hold. No court of law could convict him. He did not revile, did he? When blasphemed, he didn't utter a word. But the, at the apex of their sin and the sin against him as the Lord of lords and their uttermost vileness, vileness, he responds with his best in merciful goodness to them calling upon his father, not this time seeking to remove the cup of wrath, right? But still yet, still yet to come, but to forgive, which hasn't occurred yet. It hasn't been poured out to its extent, which we will see next week, Lord willing. But he asks his father to forgive these who are crucifying him. Jews and Romans alike, he wasn't just praying for the Jews. He was praying for the Romans. Remember what happened to this Roman centurion? What did he say? Surely this was the Son of God. But forgive their sins of all those who have acted against him in ignorance. They don't know what they're doing. Think about this in light of 1 Corinthians 2.8. If they would have understood, understood what? 
who he was. Realizing that he alone fulfilled all scriptural prophecies that they should have known as religious leaders, right? The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the lawyers, even the Sadducees. The very scrolls that he read in their presence. They would have recognized his power not only to heal, but to forgive sin and to reveal God that they proposed that they knew and said that they knew. Would they have crucified them? Because they did not, yet we see another but God intrusion here, don't we? Father, forgive them. This faith-filled prayer of Christ. And just as we read at the first in Isaiah 53, this fulfillment, this hour of crucifixion had come, the perfect fulfillment of his mission as promised is here right before them. These same scrolls, this same book, that they should have known. And he said this too in their midst for them to hear and for them to receive. Because Jesus right now is pouring out literally his very soul as the sin-bearing sacrifice. And, and in this making a plea on behalf of the very souls of his most vile and wicked persecutors. But what does this say about the salvific power of God through Christ? Does God hear his prayer? Do we see an answer to this prayer? There's, there's four groups of people here. First, there we see common people. Those on the periphery standing there looking, observing all that's happening, maybe expecting a little bit more sympathy for him. Because didn't all the people just hail him as Messiah a few days ago coming into Jerusalem? The Messiah has come honoring him. The religious leaders and Roman leaders had turned their hearts and minds now to cry out. Of course, we know who is behind all this. Crucify him. Put him to death. Another group are the rulers, Jewish and Roman alike sneering, turning up their noses in derision. We're going to look at Psalm 22 next week, Lord willing. Not even speaking to Jesus, but saying back to the crowd in mockery, he saved others, let him save himself. Anyone hanging on a tree, according to their law, was cursed by God, and they didn't see that he was bearing their curse if they would believe. There are also soldiers, again, mocking him, giving him sour wine, telling him to save himself if he's a king, even gambling for his clothes to have it for themselves, and then putting up an inscription above the cross as king of the Jews. And this was Pilate's effort to get revenge on the Jewish leaders for forcing him to crucify him. But then we come to these two common unknown, unnamed, guilty, accused, rightly, thieves on the left, one on the left, and one on the right. Again, Isaiah 53, 12, he would be among transgressors. This among them, accused with them, but innocent. 
one of them was hurling insults as well, right? Save yourself, save us. Me, 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 help me, get me out of here. Are you not the Christ? But what about the other? This other one facing guilt, rightly so, he was a thief. Facing his death, his mortality was right, staring him right in the face. Initially accusing Christ, was he not? But what happened to him after Christ prayed, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Remember, Jesus' prayers are always heard and always answered. What did he say? Amen. Here's our Lord, not choosing to save himself from physical agony, praying rather for the sake of those in his presence. And we see here the power of God unto salvation. Sovereign, miraculous, opening this man from that one prayer to the truth, the reality of Christ, and instantaneously granting faith and salvation and life. Before we jump to categorize this to any standard of salvific expediency or form, we're not all saved this way. Praise God, we're not all crucified this way, but we're not all saved this way. So don't think that my salvation wasn't that fast. No. God does his work in different ways for all of us. Some of us, it's immediate. Some of it, it may be a period of time. I mean, Peggy can testify for me. It was probably a five-year battle. God won, praise God. But let's look at the results of this prayer and the evidences that Scripture gives us of his transformation. This is glorious. He feared God and God's judgment. From blasphemy and reviling Jesus to rebuking the other thief for his own accusations. Do you not even fear God? (laughs) All of a sudden, this thief recognized who Christ was on the cross next to him. Hey, he's God. Don't you fear him? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. What he had been saying now was repulsive and even frightening to himself. What he was a part of, he now turns from and was convicted by what he had been. We don't know the depth of what he comprehended here, but he was facing death for being a thief. But the greater reality was facing divine judgment from a divine judge. And our salvation is not invoked or derived from any material poverty or poor self-esteem, but only from a reality of our sin and our guilt before a holy God, before our Lord's Father, who is both righteous to impart wrath and judgment, but also to impart mercy unto salvation through faith. In verse 41, thief says, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He came to a right rationality of who he was and what judgment he was under, right? He was exposed to the light. And seeing who he was, a guilty sinner before a holy God. 
This goes back to Matthew 5 again, talking about spiritual bankruptcy. Nothing of his own to offer. He couldn't clean himself up. He couldn't get morally, okay, I'm going to go out and do a bunch of works, and then God might accept me. He was right here on the brink of death, needing only to commend and surrender himself to God and to cry out for grace to be given. It's a lot like what Luther used to carry around in his pocket, a little note that reminded him, him, we're all beggars. We're all beggars. Third point, the transformation that occurred, verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, not get me down, save yourself, save me too, but Jesus. No more accusations, no more blasphemy. He is a surrendered soul speaking to a recognized Savior. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Where could he have got that? To speak of a kingdom except by the light of God, by the prayer of of Christ being answered to the soul. A true heartfelt plea for forgiveness. And, and what trust in what he heard from the mouth of this man, this innocent man. What purity of his words. If you get um, Pink's book on the seven statements, I want to dig into this, Lord willing, next week. He talks about the power of the Holy Spirit being such on Christ in this time that he was not whimpering and, and acting like poor me. He was in power doing what he came to fulfill. I really think that's what this thief saw and heard from the mouth of Christ was just the purity of his eternal word unto salvation. This, to consider this bloody, bruised, abused, ridiculed, probably not much left of him physically, next to him, but by the divine grace of God, he, he believed in who he said he was. He believed in his very words and in this prayer. And then finally in verse 43, the answer the consummation of this prayer, the glorious promise, the power revealed in the salvific work of God. And he said to him, this, this thief, this sinner, this common, unknown, unnamed man, nailed to a cross, just as bloody, beaten, deserving, deserving punishment, truly, truly, carrying in that word alone a fulfillment of a promise. Truly, I say to you today, wow, today you'll be with me in paradise. Entering in through the means of this physical death and through the glorious presence of God at peace forevermore by simple, childlike faith that only comes from God. That's the power of Christ's prayers. 
But the natural response to this, I don't mean to shift gears on this, but this just kind of hit me out of the blue. I was finishing this up. The natural response to this from, from the world's perspective would be that Jesus should not even consider forgiving any of these people for falsely accusing him, right? Get an attorney. Go find a lawyer. No offense to any attorneys or lawyers in the house at all. They're needed desperately, <laughs> especially believing attorneys. But of all these people should be excluded from forgiveness if anyone should be. Yet we see his love expressed in the midst of this abject suffering. And that love, what we see in 1 Corinthians 13, bearing all things, believing all things, enduring all things. And where do we find for us a greater example or display of love and forgiveness than this of Christ praying on the cross for those who put him there? This attitude of mercy is a mighty example for us to follow. It's what Peter was talking about, 1 Peter 2.21. This isn't theoretical. This isn't for lofty sages. This isn't just for pastors or deacons. It's an example for all disciples of Christ to follow. We're to live in the same manner. Why? Because God said it. I mean, that's wonderful justification but it makes it possible, his example makes it possible for us to pray in the same way when we face persecution. Have we ever faced persecution to the point where we break out in prayer, where we start considering those who are ridiculing us, abusing us, even spitting on us, mocking us? Because with this, there is a blessed assurance of sonship of our being one in Christ this is what Matthew 544 promises to us those who love and pray for their enemies even in the midst of persecution it is so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven that's the assurance Christ wants for us to have in the midst of persecution that we are his and in the midst of that we can pray for our enemies what could they do? What did they do to Jesus? They, part of the reason he died, apart from being greater, about means his, his father crushing him. But what can they do to us? Kill the body. Boom. With Christ. Just like the thief in the presence of his glory. There, there is nothing to fear in man, but to fear him who can both send destroy the body and send the soul to hell, right? So I pray that this simple prayer will be ours. Like man or father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But I love you, and I'm going to proclaim the gospel to you because I want you to share in the same salvation that this thief in his last moments near death experienced by faith and trust in Christ. Any thoughts, any comments? Yeah, bro. As you see the example of Christ in us, it's easy to follow in Acts 7 16. It says, Fall on his knees and cry, and cry out in a loud voice, and praying right there, Lord, do not hold the sins against them. And it says that he fell asleep. Amen. Right. And just like Paul, follow my example as I follow Christ. Yeah.
Stephen may have been there. Did it go beyond the thief on the cross? We, we believe the centurion was saved. What happened at Pentecost? I think a lot of those people were probably there in the midst of that crucifixion observing the crowd we talked about. 3,000, 5,000. Even some of the high priests were saved. Probably some of the Sadducees. Christ's prayers are very effective. They're always answered in the way he desires to answer them. I have to put that in there. Not always the way we desire and want, but he's faithful to answer in any way, any way he desires and knows his best. In light of that, I want to close in prayer since it is Lord's Supper. Um, I want to have just a few minutes self-examination quiet and I'll close in prayer in a few minutes and for those who are listening in the auditorium I'd, I'd like for you to partake in this as well um, just spend a few moments seeking the Lord in time of confession examination preparing our hearts if if we haven't already but in, in, in any manner any case I think it's it's worthy in light of this especially this lesson to go to the Lord so let's spend some time in prayer Most gracious Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Father, we come and bow our hearts and offer our entire beings unto you, Father, in thanksgiving and in joy and in need, Lord, because we are truly always beggars and in need of you. So, Father, we thank you for your word, the power of your word, the power and fulfillment of your promises unto salvation. And Lord, as we know from your promises that we have a hope in heaven awaiting us where we will one day, Lord, behold you in glory, in bodies fitted for eternity. Father, we thank you for this time today of, of remembering you and remembering the work that you have accomplished in and through the cross to re redeem sinners just like this thief, just like those mocking, just like those in authority. Lord, that you revealed yourself to us. You dispatched your spirit unto us and revealed your love and your grace, enabling us, Father, to believe, rescuing us from darkness and giving us true life and knowing you, learning of you, worshiping you, 
and now to, to have the privilege of fellowshipping one another as your body, as your church. So we pray, Father, for your continued blessing and presence and work among us this day as we continue to sing and open your word. Transform us, Father. May we not leave today the same as when we arrived, but by the work of your spirit and the power of your word, change us into the likeness of our merciful and loving Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.